When you pray, how do you pray? If you think if somebody um, secretly taped or you know, manuscripted the things that you say to God when you pray, what would it look like? I've had people tell me they don't know what to pray beyond a couple of sentences. It's something we talk a lot about, but we don't give a lot of instruction in prayer how to do it. Um, I'm going to set up a bit of a paradigm that all of us sort of subscribe to in one way or another that kind of comes out of Scripture. A number of weeks ago, we read Luke chapter 12, and in, um, in that chapter, Jesus says, Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find, and knock, and the door shall be opened to you. And he goes on to talk about a father. If a son asks him for a loaf of bread, he won't give him a scorpion. The Father gives gifts to those who ask Him. A little later in Luke, Jesus tells His disciples, if they had faith even as a mustard seed, they could say to this mulberry tree, be taken up and planted in the sea. There's another saying um, in John's Gospel, John 15, Jesus tells the disciples, whatever you ask in the Father's name, I will give to you. There's this um, open-ended kind of sense. We're invited to ask for whatever we want. That's exactly how Jesus says it. Add to that our two readings today with the widow and with Jacob. Jacob, who wrestles a blessing out of God, and a widow whose incessant bothering of a judge gets her justice. And you come away, um, to one degree or another, with this idea of God, something like a vending machine. You put your prayers in for whatever you want and select your option for what you'd like to come out. And if he doesn't give it to you, it's because he's soft-willed. He's an old grandpa and you just need to needle him and bother him and bother him until he gives you what you want. And there's a common sense in which um, we pray like that. Christians think that way. There's um, popular kinds of slogans. You need to wrestle God's blessing out of him. And yet, the fact of the matter is, lots of things we pray for don't come to pass. Paul himself, the apostle to the Gentiles, prayed three times for the Father to take thorn from his flesh, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Somewhere in there, there's something more complex than God simply being this transactional being that we just ask things and he gives them to us. There's a much more of a depth and a breadth to prayer than just getting stuff. Um, Go back for a moment. We start by re-looking at these two readings in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jacob, and this common um, phrase, this um, uh, tracks sermons and slogans around prayer, you need to wrestle God's blessing out of him. And if we just um, expand a bit to the perspective of Genesis and Jacob's story, Jacob's original name is Trickster, And so Jacob in Genesis 27, as you might know, has lied and deceived and stolen the birthright from his brother Esau. And Esau learns this, and he's now hot on Jacob's heels to kill him. And in Genesis 28, Jacob lies down alone as he flees at night, and God appears to him in a dream um, uh, with angels ascending and descending on a ladder. So these two visitations that Jacob has in his life. And God says to him there, this is very important, Jacob, I promise you that I will bring you back to this land, you and your children and your children's children, to prosper here 
and I will not depart from you until I have done it. At the beginning of this moment, this fearful moment, Esau, the risk of him overtaking and killing Jacob, God makes this assured promise to him. And twice more, God will come back and reaffirm his promise to Jacob, that he will keep this promise, that he'll bring him back. And you hear that in that prayer today, Jacob saying, God, surely bring me back. I'm afraid of my brother Esau and what he may do to me. And Jacob then ends up in this moment, in this night, where this man wrestles with him. And Jacob pleads for a blessing. What you need to notice, or what we must notice above all, is that Jacob's wrestling adds nothing to the promise of God. God had already promised to do this thing. So it's not like Jacob's now saying, um, I now need to add some more prayer to get to this point. Jacob is wrestling, if anything, with himself, as many writers have noted. God doesn't need to be persuaded to keep his own promise. Jacob needs to be persuaded to believe in God's promise. When all of the things look counter to that, it's okay for Jacob to pray. It's okay for him to strive and struggle, but it's not the prayer that convinces God to bless him. God had already promised in his good will to bless him. It's, not, um, it's important in Scripture not to take away the stories themselves as endorsements for behavior or Jacob's names as endorsements for our own activity. Jacob is called the striver and the trickster. He's a manipulative guy. He's a doubtful guy. And if you continue on through Genesis, he doesn't get a lot better. He lies and he fears and he worries. And the lesson from Jacob's life is not be a striver and a trickster, but that God sets his everlasting blessing on strivers and tricksters and will not forsake them. We take comfort not in his weakness, but in the fact that his weakness does not prohibit God from blessing him. In the widow's passage today, also often paired like our lectionary does today, to convince us that we need to always be praying night and day to convince God to do his will for us. I was um, reading this week back to, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and anybody around at that time knew these Frank Peretti novels that came out. Piercing the Darkness and The Spirit of Dark, whatever these uh, three titles were, sold millions, tens and millions of copies. And it added this enormous energy to this spiritual warfare idea. And in Peretti's novels and in popular Christian culture at the time, this, this idea emerged, there are demons out there and Christians need to be busy praying or evil will triumph. And anybody knows um, any philosophy, that's an ancient heresy called Manichaeism, <laughs> that there's evil and humanity needs to then pray it away because God's not strong enough to defeat it on his own. And we come away so often with this passage with the widow thinking, oh, we just need to pray and pray and pray because evil forces and demons are going to prohibit God from being good to us. A silly idea. In the context of the passage, the Pharisees have asked Jesus about the coming of the Son of Man and the kingdom. And Jesus is talking about the day and the hour will not be known to you, but you must stand firm. You must stand firm in the midst of persecution. And then he tells the parable so that we'll be steady and firm in the midst of persecution, praying and waiting for him. 
And the comparison with the unjust judge doesn't mean that God is weak-willed and needs to be convinced. It's the opposite. Jesus says, how much more will the Father give you what He has promised? How much more will He give you justice? God doesn't need to be convinced and persuaded. He doesn't need us to work over His will. Well, then what is prayer? If it's not striving with God and working at His will to do favors for us. Uh, Three answers to what prayer is. And you can only um, summarize prayer, obviously, but in light of our readings today, three thoughts about what prayer is if it's not striving and wrestling with God. First of all, the church has always handed down, especially those, those mothers and desert fathers who lived and prayed for a lifestyle, that prayer is above all the conformity of our will to God's will. We enter into prayer not to get in to do our will, but so that our will would be conformed to His. How did Jesus teach His disciples to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Not my will be done. That's the very heart of prayer. That we would come in to fellowship and nearness with God and allow our will to be conformed to His. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I pray you take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus setting up the standard of prayer is to come in close fellowship with God and say, these are my needs, these are my wants, these are the things that I yearn for and the things I fear, but thy will be done. It's not that we can't bring all those things to him when people are sick or diseased or in stress or when we have great anxiety, we come before the Lord so that He will transform our will into His. So that we will know the path we're on is His will and that He'll care for us. We may pray with Him, we may enter in with Him, but it's not the prayers that do the work. Augustine in his confessions, if you don't have these confessions or haven't read them, I recommend them. It's a long prayer where he tells this testimony about coming to faith. And he says, God, you didn't need me, and yet you made me. And not only did you make me, you saved me, and you made me a part of your work, but you didn't need me to make me, you didn't need me to be a part of your work. And when I work for you, I add nothing to what you already do. When we pray, when we come alongside to God, we add nothing to what he can already do in his goodwill. We come in as children with the Father to plead with Him. That metaphor of the Father that we pray to is so significant. Think about the way that at times um, parents or your parents or the way with your children, you invite them in to do some practical task. To help you bake or to mow the lawn or to make a repair around the home. The children don't add anything to what you're already doing but they contribute by relationship, by being in conversation with you. There's a richness that we find in prayer. God wants us pleading and speaking and passionately praying to to Him. But we don't add to His goodness. We don't add to His power. We just join Him in love with our wills, being conformed to Him. Our Father in heaven, Jesus taught us to pray. So prayer above all is our wills being conformed to the will of God. Prayer is also significant for the power in its brevity. 
We don't need to wrestle all night like Jacob to get God's blessing. If you know the Gospels, Jesus is critical of long-winded prayers. When he comes with disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't be like the Gentiles who heap up empty phrases and for all their long, wordy speech think that God will hear their prayers. But when you pray, say thus, Our Father, who art in heaven. It's this little six-line simple prayer, but powerful and rich in every line. July 28th, I looked back, I preached a sermon on the Lord's Prayer, and I've been reading on it since. People have written series of sermons and books on it, and I only touched on it. You can go back and listen to these dynamics of prayer, but just in these little lines, look at what it does. It hallows God, it reminds us that His will is above all the earth, and we invite Him to do it on earth as it is in heaven. We ask for daily bread and needs. It's a statement of not only need, but of justice. For if I have my need, and it goes beyond those around me who don't have need, I have not had my need, I've had more, says Origen in his commentary. To ask for daily bread is to think of myself and my neighbor. To ask for the forgiveness of my sins, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors, is to deal with the burdens of the past, but it's also to make peace. The prayer heals relational dynamics. It sends us back out to our neighbor to make peace. Lead us not into temptation. It asks for help to go forward into the future, hoping for the day His kingdom comes. The sheer power of prayer you only need a minute to say. I'm not sure how often you all pray the Lord's Prayer, but it's a simple way to pray without feeling weighed down with needing to come up with wordy phrases and significant clauses that are popular in culture that may get God's ear. There's a simplicity in it. John Cassian was a monk in the 5th century who who, um, wrote on this idea of the brevity of prayer. He said, almost none of us can pray all day long or for very long at all before our minds wander. Instead of praying all day or trying to pray for long periods of time, why not pray little prayers constantly? And he begins with this one that he takes from the Psalms that's in the Book of Common Prayer. Lord, make haste to help me. Cassian says, that's all you need. Lord, make haste to help me. It brings us back in the presence of God. It begins to conform us to his will. It reminds us of the power of the brevity of simply saying to God, be near. Lord, make haste to help me. Prayer is above all being conformed to God's will. It's powerful in its brevity. And the gist of it, the heart of it, is not us praying to God, but Christ praying in us. You may know this line in uh, Colossians, Paul says, or in, in Galatians, Paul says to the Galatians, He has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Easy to overlook the significance of what Paul is saying. When you kneel, or when you stand, or when you lay on your face to pray... Christ prays through you to the Father. This is why it should make so much sense that we don't have to strive with God or plead with Him like a widow over and over again. If Christ is praying for you, you don't need excessive prayer. You may need it psychologically, but God hears His Son when He prays through you. This I proclaim, Paul told the Colossians, the mystery hidden for ages but now revealed, Christ 
in you the hope of glory. If you want to linger in prayer, if you have the patience and the time to linger in prayer, linger here. On the thought, on this vision, on the hope of glory that Christ is in you already praying to the Father. To come before Him and know that like Jacob, when you begin to ask, you need not wrestle. But based on the Son's prayer for your benefit, the Father says, I will not depart from you until I have done it. Amen.